Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. Throughout the course of this show, especially in this first season, we're extremely fortunate to have guests that have been through life experiences that have shaped the way they act, think, and why they do things. We've had guests that have been through crazy experiences like hyperinflation growing up in Zimbabwe and having the state take everything that they own from them. And we're lucky to have an amazing guest this morning, Olga Feldmeyer. Actually, let me, it's Feldmeyer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, let me start that again. We're really lucky to have a guest this morning, Olga Feldmeyer. Olga had watched the collapse of the Soviet Union where she grew up in Ukraine. After working three jobs, she had enough money to bribe, actually, excuse me, to pay her way into university, which was the way it was done back then. After graduating with multiple degrees in Ukraine and in Germany, she went to work in the lion's den of the banking industry. I'm just joking. She went to work at Barclays and UBS, where she had learned a lot about what the crypto industry had needed. However, unlike most of the early crypto folk, Olga decided to engage with the government of Switzerland, and now she's known as the crypto queen, but really she's known as one of the pioneers of Switzerland's Crypto Valley in Zug. Now Olga is the chief executive officer of Smart Valor, a Switzerland-based blockchain company that is building a decentralized marketplace to tokenize for tokenized alternatives. It's very interesting because Crypto Valley is Switzerland's way of saying to blockchain companies, come come work here. We will we will provide a place to run your companies. And today, some of the most well-known companies have been started or based their operations there, like Ethereum, Cardano, Tezos, Bitmain, Golem, and even Zappo. Speaking of Zappo, Olga, thank you for coming on the show. That's where you got started in this space, correct? Yes, Charles, that's right. That was back in 2015, early crypto days. I, I had I had read somewhere that you actually um, you had graduated from university in, in Ukraine and you were deciding that you wanted to go study in the West somewhere. You said, I want to go study somewhere and you didn't really know where to go. You had read you had found out that Germany was offering scholarships, but the entrance exams were were in German. Um, let me tell you something. I, I took my entrance exam in English and English is one of my first language. And I still didn't do very well. How, how did you do that? Did you speak German? <laughs> well, you know, Charlie, it's a funny situation I found myself in. I learned that there are scholarships and examinations are coming up in nine months. But before then, I didn't learn any German at all. So here's a question. How do you learn German or any foreign language in nine months to be good enough to stand the exam on macro and microeconomy? <laughs> You tell me. <laughs> well, I kind of first had an illusion I can learn a language so far, so fast. But then basically I figured out, no, there is no way for me to really like learn to speak that. So I basically learned macroeconomy book by heart. So I knew every, every so, page, you know, just so basically you, 300. If you walk into a restaurant, you couldn't even order food, but... You can start explaining to the waiter the difference of macro versus microeconomics in exactly, German. Exactly, exactly. And I was just very lucky. You know, one of my favorite chapters was about, you know, tools that central banks have in hand to curb inflation. And that was my favorite topic. And I learned it excellently in German. And luckily, you know, it was oral exam, right? And in this oral exam, this German professor asked me exactly this question and I learned it by heart, you know. I knew all the <laughs> all the details, <laughs> so I was Hold very on. lucky. Would oral exam be more difficult than a written exam? Yeah, more, oral is more difficult because you need to be fast, right? You have no time to think. 
It's like us now speaking. It would be so much easier to write it down, huh? <laughs> yeah, but anyway, you know, that was kind of like, this is what I learned in life. You know, it's always about being lucky a little bit, but working really hard to achieve that. And it's this combination, right? I worked really hard to know what I need to know for this exam. And then, you know, I was a little bit lucky that best parts of my memory, this was the question, right? And then I went to, well, I was one of the three you know, students from Ukraine that got this scholarship, right? It's, I mean, it's 55 million people and three scholarships per year. That sounds like luck, right? <laughs> That's like the odds of mining for Bitcoin on your laptop right now. <laughs> Exactly. So I, I got the scholarship. I was in Germany and I was so happy that, you know, I could study in one of the best German universities. And, you know, when you're uh, living in, in the foreign countries and you work double that hard, right? I had to work double that hard to get the degree in German university. Also, I'm not a native speaker. And well, then later I got this the first job was um, at Boston Consulting Group in financial services like BCG and McKinsey, you know, and investment banks. That was like, you know, like Google's and startups today. It was the best job you could get, right? Um, yeah. And then it was like five years, BCG, all banks. We were basically, you know, buying banks, selling banks for banks, doing the strategy for banks thinking about the future of banking, you know. And I always laugh about that, you know, what we thought, like, what will come in 10 years back then. Like, we could never even dream about what we are talking about today, right, Charlie? was all this blockchain and AI. Back then, it was just like, oh, we will have more efficient processes. We will have, you know, more specialized players. That's the future of banking, right? It was so boring. <laughs> So I think we are really, really lucky, you know, that we today live through this explosion of new technologies, also in financial services. What do you think the crypto, what do you think the banking industry really thinks about the crypto space? I mean, do you ever call up your old colleagues and say, hey, remember, remember me and now I work in crypto? What do you guys think? Oh, totally. You know, it's so funny. It's actually, I, I was part of them, right? So after BCG, I went to work for Barclays Capital in London uh, and later for UBS, you know, the large bank here in Switzerland, the largest, the global, globally largest wealth management bank. And, you know, I still have a lot of friends, right? And sometimes we meet for a drink or, you know, I come to visit them. It's actually funny that most people... They kind of like look at me and, and say, they have even, you know, kind of like regret for me. They're like, oh, poor Olga. She came to work now in this crypto money laundry industry. Like she will be probably soon in jail. And like, how do you manage all the risks? <laughs> and people, you know, in the banks, they, they really think it's like it's it's very shady and we have no idea what we are doing. And luckily, our bank stays out of it. <laughs> This is a perception I get very often, Charlie. It's really oh, funny. Do you, think they, do you think that they really think these things or are they just more protecting their own livelihood? Well, this is an opinion. Now I'm talking not as an institution, but as people, individual persons that I know, right? So so this is, you know, it's not people that are interested in, in a certain position of a bank. This is personal opinions. What you're mentioning, like institutions... I think, yes, there is a certain competitive threat, but it's on a very strategic level that people understand it, you know, in, in the, you know, strategic division or corporate strategy division. This is where people understand it. It's not CEO, it's not divisional heads, it's not people who are in business. And it's not the people that are taking shots, right? So I, to be honest, I don't really think that you know, what we've seen now is that banks don't work with blockchain companies, blah, blah, blah. I don't think this is because of that they're afraid of us. I think we're still too small for them to be afraid of us. Even today? It's kind of starting to change. But, but if you think about it, is there any payment service that became like super big that banks should be afraid of? Probably not. I exchanges, crypto exchanges somehow taking away business from banks 
today probably not right are there any like really large peer-to-peer lending platform on blockchain with that use crypto not yet right whereas you know in kind of like let's call it traditional fintech disruptor you know companies like square and revolut they are much more real threat to banking than we are we will be in several years time like probably in three five years but today we're not yet there i guess <laughs> recently I was on an episode. I was featured on an episode of 60 Minutes. I'm not sure if you had a chance to watch it. 60 Minutes is a TV show here in the United States, and it's a it's a staple of um, of television, news magazine television. It's been around for 53 years. Um, so even like my parents growing up had, had watched 60 Minutes. It's a show that's on every Sunday night. Um, and for the first time, they did a a Bitcoin episode and it recently played here um, on the uh, the 19th of May. And um, I was very fortunate to be featured in that episode. Reason I'm bringing this up is um, the show does three segments and they do three different stories. And the Bitcoin story was the last one. The first story they did was about a major money laundering scandal um, from a bank. And it was very interesting. I feel like that they had done that because it prefaced the the Bitcoin episode. So what had happened was they talked about a story of money laundering happening in Donskay Bank. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't in the whole bank. It was one small branch, one of the smallest branch based in Estonia. What this bank was doing was allowing people to launder money like Vladimir Putin's cousin from rubles into dollars. And it's very interesting because it was being done by one small branch of this pretty insignificant small bank in a country that most people have never even heard of. And the amount of money that was being laundered through this one little small branch of one little small bank was more money that the market cap of Bitcoin or that any trading volume of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency actually happens, actually is done. It's so insignificant. And they, they, they preface the Bitcoin story with this story to show people, look, everyone says that, yeah, Bitcoin is money laundering and scam and all these different things. But here, here's one little story of one little bank of doing these illegal things. And if it wasn't for one whistleblower who's hiding right now, we would never even know about this. That's impressive. <laughs> That's, that was a very smart move. <laughs> I, I was very impressed by that. I mean, I felt that, I felt that, it was a very good way to explain Bitcoin because the producers knew that if they had just come out with a Bitcoin episode, this is what everyone would think about during the episode. So they just cut cut it out. They 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 cut it out and gave a good comparison to fiat right before. That's true. That's a very smart move. Absolutely. You see, uh, it's uh, basically the same here. I come from traditional banking industry. Um, and, and, you know, um, back then in 2015, as we were trying to get licensed here with Xapo, um, as you might know, I've been uh, serving at Xapo as a commercial managing director uh, back then. So, you know, back then it was actually for every lawyer, for everybody who is working in supervisory authorities. Like if you look at Bitcoin, you know, well, transactions done fast outside of banking system, anonymously. Like this is a perfect template for money laundering, just as a such, like theoretically, right? <laughs> and and of course, you know, we were back then with Xapo, one of the first companies, Bitcoin companies, to get licensed here in Switzerland, or were trying to get licensed. So the way, you know, lawyers and a lot of people on, in supervisory organizations, this is the way they saw us. Well, it's technology enhanced method to launder money, right? This is the first thing that popped in their mind when they were sure. looking at this technology. But it's not this way, right? We know it, you know, and we know how huge the money laundering burden on the banking side is and how small and insignificant <laughs> is a proportion of money that is used uh, in, in crypto. It's more uh, about messaging. Of course, in any industry, you're going to have the good and the bad. 
we're not going to sit here saying that the whole banking industry is bad because we all know that there are very some good positives that we use. But we think that the crypto industry um, potentially is better and can do a better job, uh, especially with uh, more equally to, to different people. And so that's why we're so um, for it and we're, we're evangelizing and talking about it. But I wanted to ask you, what was it like growing up in in the Ukraine? <laughs> well, you know, actually, at the beginning, it wasn't too bad, right? It was Soviet Union and everybody was equal and we had the same rights. At least, you know, if you're a simple person, this is the way it looked to you, right? What does that mean? You're all equal and you all have the same rights. How, oh, did, no. you, how did you feel that growing up? <laughs> well, you know, there were 15 republics in Soviet Union from Ukraine to Tajikistan. It was always, you know, the, uh, the ideology that, you know, we are all equal. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you're rich or poor, we have all the same rights, right? It's a Soviet Union. It's equality and trust and, and well, this commun- com- communistic ide- ideology of, you know, being a better society, right? And, you know, Everybody, like simple people, everybody believed this, right? It's just very few people who understood, oh, there is another story on the back of it. There is a party and they are cooking their own <laughs> own dishes and so on. Normal people didn't know that, right? And was, I was growing up... Was taught to you in schools? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The whole ideology, films, music, books, how they teach us history, you know, how they even teach us foreign languages, you know, English was taught in the way that, you know, after uh, five years at the school, you would have no idea how to speak English, right? It was actually the purpose, right? You were teached in the way so we could not teach, learn anything. (laughs) Because they didn't want us to listen. They didn't want us to understand what other people are saying about us, right? So this is crazy. And, you know, I was growing up with my mom. I never had a father. And my mom was a piano player. So as the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine became an independent country, because, you know, all the all the economy, all the economic ties between two countries broke down together, Ukraine was basically bankrupt. So what Ukraine did to save the country, they started to print money massively, right? Like we had 10,000% inflation during five years' time. And, and you know, basically the salaries of people like my mother, who worked for state while she played piano, uh, they were paid like with six or nine months delay. So you can imagine what six months delay in payment of your salary does to you with 10,000% inflation, right? So you would get a monthly salary that will be enough to buy one piece of bread, right? So that's that's that was quite extreme time, you know, and people lost everything. People were on the street, you know, there were people dead on the street that were lying there for several days before, you know, somebody picks them up and, and cleans the street. Like all this crazy, crazy, you know, things of collapsing state. Um, when you see this, you know, and, and especially kind of like you cannot do anything about it. Like for us, you know, the only way to save our wealth or <laughs> not wealth, but savings would be to buy a dollar. But they said that dollars are illegal you cannot hold any dollars right this is the illegal this is prohibited illegal. you could not hold any dollars that was the government said this this currency you cannot hold. no no because you see nobody wanted us to you know to get out of national currencies they wanted us all to be burned <laughs> through hyperinflation to pay for the for the debts right and to pay for somehow grappling with this decomposing economy so the only way was to go on the street to those kiosks and buy some dollars there but you would never know if they are fake or they are real so we once bought a dollar but it happened that in the other place where we wanted to sell them later to buy some food you know it they were fake right and well it's 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 illegal activity all of this so where are you going to go do you going to go to police and say your dollars were fake Right. So so this is like really, really crazy experience. And, you know, then later I became, you know, advisor, consultant and then banker. And at some point I became even executive director at UBS. Right. In charge of 
Central and Eastern Europe, the whole wealth management distribution of UBS. I mean, I've, I quite made it my, my career in banking. But, you know, at some point, I always remembered this experience of being so let down by your government, by your state, of having so no protection, being so, you know, at the at the edge of basically, you know, complete deconstruction, right? And I thought to myself, wow, I made it out. I made my career. I achieved everything you can achieve here in Western world. But most of the people out there where I was before, Ukraine, Africa, Latin America, all of this, it's still the same. Nothing changed there, Charlie. Nothing. In, in Argentina, in Ukraine, nothing changed there. It's still the same. There are no rights. There is no protection. Um, even access to banking in many countries if you have access, then it's just local banking system. How how is this going to benefit you or help you to protect your wealth? No. And how are you supposed to trade with with other people around the world if you can't exactly. even money? Yeah, and 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 the worst thing is, you know, that I figured out. Well, it's not the same for everybody. It's kind of like this: if you're rich, right, in the same countries out there, if you're rich, you can come to large. Swiss or offshore banks, you can open a bank account and your wealth is very much protected. If you kind of come in with, you know, three, five, ten millions, there will always be a way for you to open a bank account and protect your wealth. And a nice client advisor will come over to you, it will fly over to you wherever you are, will sit down with you in a nice restaurant and give you perfect advice how to structure your wealth so you make sure that it grows. But this is if the you story, though, you need money to make money. Yeah, exactly. But if you're not there, if you're just Charlie, if you're just like us, like you and me, you've been entrepreneur. Maybe you've done, you know, some business successful. You have made your, I don't know, your first 300k or your 500k. Nobody wants you. Like no banks here in Switzerland will gonna open you a bank account to make sure that you can invest this money safely. They're not interested, you know? It's just not enough money for all this trouble and cross-border and advisory and so on. So this is what you see today. You know, this banking is like very, you know, one-sided and very much oriented to rich people, high net worth, you know, all of this Western world and rich people. But but for the rest of us, there is nothing. And I, th I think, you know, Blockchain technology came to change this, right? It came to, you know, fundamentally change the balance of power between people and state, between startups and Wall Street. And this is the exciting thing why I believe I am absolutely on the right place on the right time. When people say that Bitcoin and crypto is a bank in your pocket, they just don't they don't just mean being able to save money and to be able to store your wealth. By having a bank in your pocket, it gives you access to the whole banking world, literally from your cell phone, without needing the permission or the slow bureaucracy or the slow technology of another counterparty. And I think that is a lot more powerful than just being able to store um, your money. You know, people laugh when I tell them, and, and I think you... You completely understand what I mean by this, but when I explain Bitcoin to people and I explain cryptocurrency to people, one of the first things I say, because it just comes out of my mouth and I know that I've, I've already lost the person, I say that I believe that Bitcoin has the ability to bring about world peace, which is a huge thing that I think we all want. We want to end wars. We want to end our government's ability to wage war. Uh, we just want to stop killing for no no reason and, and stop hating for no reason there's no reason for it and i think bitcoin in the crypto space is is something that'll bring about that because here not just with with finance but with information we have the ability to communicate and to transact with millions of people around the world without anyone telling us that we shouldn't or can't do that yeah so i'm totally with you charlie and um I used to have the same conversations, and the way to explain this is actually to say, well, look, a very simple example. If Ukraine or Zimbabwe or Argentina 
will start to print money to inflation. A lot of states actually start to do inflation as a means to provide funding for wars, right? This is the way it's been done through the history. So when they start to print money, to have more money to, you know, to buy weapons and to start the war, you as a citizen today can say no. You can say no in the way that you just take this money and you buy Bitcoin or any other crypto. You just get out of their local money. And with that, they cannot push on you the burden of inflation because you're, you're completely out, right? You're not using their money. And if you're not using their money, well, then the whole, you know, point of this hyperinflation and the hyperinflation doesn't, you know, it it does not translate in the same impact on economy as it would be if people would have to use this currency, right? Sure, sure. So, so actually, if you see it this way, should Zimbabwe decide to have a war, all the people would say, well, we don't want it, and they just complete completely start to use the local currency. So guess what? Zimbabwe will, will not be able to have all this money and to fund the war. So I'm totally with you on this argument. So you, you know, you, you spoke earlier, you had a career in banking um, and you achieved a point in your career that, you know, I would have never achieved and most people can never achieve. Um, you made it, right? Um <laughs> And then all of a sudden you decide to jump to this crypto industry that's young and immature and still young and immature and with no infrastructure or technology or without any, uh, you know, these companies don't, don't even offer health insurance. I mean, what was what the hell was going through your head? <laughs> yeah, this is what my parents asked me too. <laughs> like, are you crazy? You're now on 250K at UBS and all is nice. Like, what are you doing? You're going to work for Xapo. They're not even paying you. Like, are you totally out of your <laughs> head? So I had this, you know. But Charlie, I think, you know, I've been 10 years in banking and consulting. And, you know, for me, coming out of Ukraine, I kind of like, you know, as a foreigner or immigrant, you always live in the country with this chip on your shoulder that, you know, everybody else is so much better and so much smarter and they can speak the language so much better than you. And you kind of like the first phase of your life, you're trying to prove yourself and everybody else that you're not stupid, that you're as good as everybody else, right? And you try so hard. So you go the standard path and you do this corporate career and blah, blah, blah. But at some point you're done, right? You're done and you proved yourself and them and everybody. And then you know, I'm fine, right? I'm fine now. The question is like, what should I do? What do I want to do? So for me, Charlie, that was the first time back in 2014, after probably, yeah, like 10 years into my career, for the first time I asked myself, what do I want to do, actually? <laughs> and the answer was, well, I read a lot about Bitcoin, you know, that was, you were very famous, things you guys were doing, everybody knew this, you know, the big uh, crash also came up in this year. But but for me, with my experience in Ukraine, I thought like, oh my goodness, wow, people would have for the first time post-national money, right? Money not governed by government. How huge is that? And from then on, it was just the question, so how, what can I do in this industry? And actually, it's funny, I thought I will have to go and, you know, now change another country and go to Silicon Valley because this is where Bitcoin companies are. And I did this. I went to San Francisco and I was trying to meet people. But the result of all of this was that um, through the Swiss guy here, I figured out that there is a company, Xapo, and they are planning to relocate here. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I don't need to go to Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is coming here. That's amazing. Let's find out who that is. And I figured out, oh, okay, so there is Vences, Cazares, um, CEO of Xapo, um, somewhere in San Francisco. And I just wrote him a letter, just a very standard postal letter. I found out in a Security and Exchange Commission, like a their address. letter or a, an email letter? No, letter. A physical letter or postal. an email letter? Physical. Oh, postal. <laughs> yeah, postal. 
because I figured out, you know, in their security and exchange uh, registration, there was a formal address of some mailbox. And I sent their letter because I couldn't find out his email address, right? <laughs> did you write it by hand or did you type it? I first wrote it by hand, but then I figured out he would not be able to read it. So I typed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. And then I sent the letter and somebody told me, like, forget it. Like, you know, CEOs of such companies, they never read those letters. They never reply. Like, just just forget it, you know. And you know what? Three days later, he answered me per email. <laughs> he said, like, Olga, I'm coming to Switzerland next week. Let's meet up on my very first day in Switzerland. Let's meet. <laughs> So that was really amazing. You know, it was just, again, you know, small uh, small kind of, you know, luck that, that I had to, uh, in that situation that, you know, Xapo back then, in 2013, they raised 40 million capital from benchmark index, grayscale, like the top of the top of Silicon Valley. And they built a product. But the problem was still the same. In America, they were basically illegal company. They had no legal status, no licenses. With banking partners, was super difficult, right? They tried to to do something in Hong Kong, but you know, even in Hong Kong, you couldn't have a banking relationship. <laughs> so what do you do? That was, you know, quite oh, quite difficult that. time. Yeah, well, you know, Wences was smart. He was like, ah, Olga's in Switzerland. She's a banker. She wants to work with stock options. Great. <laughs> Let's get Olga on board. So I joined Xapo back in 2015. And yeah, that was probably one of the best things I've ever done. What was their goal the first six months? What did they really need the most? Yeah, we basically just wanted to become licensed legal company and to do what we are doing, but, you know, with a, within the legal framework of financial institution. So XAPA back then was just about um, storing your private key for Bitcoin holdings, right? So Today, yeah. Zappo is one of the largest custodians for, for Bitcoin. In fact, the Grayscale Investment Trust here in the United States holds all their Bitcoin at at Zappo. Yeah, well, I cannot com comment on individual clients, but, but I think it's true. It's one of the largest Bitcoin custodians. And that's why, you know, last week we heard those rumors that, you know, Xapo, institutional part of Xapo business is going to be purchased by Coinbase or Fidelity for 50 million. So that's, that's you know, to me, to be honest, this is not very much surprising. Because Xapa today, it has like two very different businesses, right? One is like really, you know, this vision of bringing mobile money, post-national money to third world countries and uh, empowering people. This is a very strong vision. And, and um, this is, I guess, you know, what is driving Vences, um, this is the CEO of Xapo. And on the other side, you have this institutional business, which just kind of like developed from there. And yes, it's now there, but it's completely different business, right? You're talking to banks, funds, and uh, to to combine those two businesses in one brand is very difficult, right? In terms of marketing, branding, and so on. So I think it's a very logical step for Xapo to, um, you know, to spin off or to sell this institutional business. But by the way, you know, I was one of the first people here to work on this too. Um, so as a Swiss bank, the first Swiss bank to do um, the note uh, on on Bitcoin, um, they were basically also visiting me and I was bringing them to this facility there and showing the premises and the security and the vault to convince them that they should store the Bitcoins with us. That was like, you know, beginning of 2016. It was very early days for institutional clients for custody. It still is. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We just see in the, the very bottom, uh, the, the very top of the iceberg, which is going to... What was, what was Crypto Valley like in Switzerland um, back then? Was there uh, established regulations and, and laws to, to help? For, you know, now it's, it's easier 
if you want to start a crypto company and you go to Switzerland, it's, you know, getting up banking licenses, all these things, establishing residency. Um, there's already preset ways to do that. Was it like that back then? Oh, well, you know, Charlie, it was actually quite different. It was the opposite, right? The Crypto Valley was non-existent. We were, I believe, like the first three, four companies. It was Ethereum uh, with Vitalik. He used to live here. Here next door to our office today. Um, there was uh, Bitcoin Swiss, uh, Moneta, and Xapu. We were the, the four company you would find here. It was actually funny. I remember the reporter from kind of Wall Street Journal of Switzerland came to write about us. And yeah, well, there were just four companies to write about <laughs> in Crypto Valley, right? But, you know, on the other side, uh, we started this conversation uh, with FINMA, which is, you know, Swiss Financial uh, Supervisory Authority in 2015, around summer. And, you know, it was very difficult conversation because we were trying to explain what we are doing. But we were the first company who ever talked to them about this. So their knowledge and understanding of blockchain, what is even Bitcoin, they learned it with us, right? <laughs> we gave them like step-by-step -step educational course <laughs> on what is Bitcoin and what is custody and what are private keys and what is our security and what do we want to do. And all that we wanted to, to do is just to be, you know, legal company doing the storage of private keys, right? This is all basically. And then those wallets, yes, you wire us dollars or Swiss francs and we give you Bitcoin and we store your keys. This is it. Actually simple, right? But because we were the first one, it wasn't so simple. So um, it was kind of like, yeah, they first started and learned and so on. But, you know, we wanted to get licensed as financial intermediary so this is kind of like probably comparable in us to money transmitter license right so we do payments we receive payments oh, yeah. i know all about that yeah exactly <laughs> so it's actually not a big deal here to receive this license right but the problem was you know they looked at our how our storage works and at the risks you know risk of this and that and hacking and oh my goodness and then they came to the conclusion, well, you know what, let's take the most conservative approach. And in this most conservative approach, we would be basically a bank, right? So we are not just storing the private keys. No, no, we are taking public deposits, right? <laughs> we are taking money from you and we are like the saving bank, right? Which meant, you know, that we need to apply for banking license. So that was the result. They told us, well, guys, you're welcome. Come here. <laughs> we are happy about another company in, in Switzerland, but you need to apply for banking license. What would you say? Is that a great outcome? It's the worst outcome you can get. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So, well, because, you know, in Switzerland, you need 10 million minimal capital requirement to even start conversations about the bank. You need much more money for operations. You need about 100 people on the ground. So even for Xapo, who was back then still, you know, capitalized with 40 million raised um, at, at the beginning, it was too big number, right? So, and, and then we kind of figured out, well, guys, you know, actually we are not a bank. Like, look at this. We are not doing anything with those Bitcoins, right? We just, they are yours. We're not even using, we're not, you know, staking it. We're not doing anything with it. We're not leasing it. <laughs> You're holding it on behalf of other customers. Exactly. We're just a safe box for private keys. So, and but, you know, they didn't see it this way, right? They were just basically, I think, you know, from today's perspective, I think, you know, Switzerland coming out of, you know, bank secrecy and all the scandals about, you know, Switzerland being destination for laundered money, you know, all this history, like, you know, this country just tried so hard the last 10 years to get away from this long shadow of, you know, tax evasion and money laundering. 
So they wanted to be as far away as possible from anything that reminds me some that reminds any kind of money laundering, right? So I this, have to say that surprised me the most, though. What surprised me the most is that you would think Switzerland, you know, you have this very, very, very negative stigma about Bitcoin. You have this very, 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 very um, negative stigma about um, Switzerland. And all of a sudden, you Switzerland is one of the first countries to actually be um, adopt, not adopting Bitcoin, but opening its doors to it. And you know why? I have my theory. <laughs> well, it's more oh, yeah. than a theory. Look, I've been in, in private banking and wealth management, right? And and you see, Switzerland was becoming the largest offshore wealth management center between the Second World War and basically beginning of 2000, 2005, 8, 9, right? So all the money of this world, I mean, it was massive. It was 10, 10 trillion uh, worth of assets, right, came here from all the offshore uh, U.S. And, and Asia and so on, right? But, you know, what happened then in around 2008 as a, a financial crisis stroke and U.S. government started to look for money for bailout, <laughs> they figured out, oh, you know what, where we can get money? We can get money in Switzerland of our U.S. citizens that are, you know, hiding there for tax purposes. So they cracked down on UBS. You know, there was this guy who sold the data of all U.S. clients to U.S. government. It was a big, big, big scandal and big deal. And then basically U.S. government pushed on Switzerland, on Swiss government, to abandon bank secrecy and give away all the client information about all U.S. citizens, right? It was a big, big, you know, trouble here because, I mean, you know, all the banking industry was built on this, right? It was built on this banking secrecy for 200 years, right? We used to have this bank secrecy here as a protection, as a safe jurisdiction, safe haven, right? And now this is being abandoned and ruined by Americans. You know, this is quite, quite a painful process that this country came through. And then the question reimagined, okay, so look, around 10% of our GDP is coming from financial services. With banking secrecy abandoned, you know, wealth management will be much harder sell. So what should this what should become our competitive advantage, right? And you would see from there that you know a simple answer is well, innovation, technology, right? Decentralized infrastructure for capital markets, all of this. This is the future of financial uh, services. So why shouldn't we open the door for those technology innovators and create a new competitive advantage? Not tax evasion, not money laundering, not banking secrecy, technology, right? So you see, this is actually a very logical answer from, from like, you know, from a state level, from the state perspective, right? Taking into account, Charlie, that Switzerland is also very strong on the technology. If you look at the international innovation rankings, you know, Switzerland for the last 10 years was always one of the top five countries, right? We have here all the health tech and industry and, you know, a lot of technology companies are still here. Switzerland is an innovation leader in technologies. So why not in banking technologies, right? It's very, you know, logical answer, isn't it? How is, how is Switzerland able to do that? <laughs> well, we created the crypto crypto valley, right? And you know, by the way, the example example was interesting because that was one of the first cases that was kind of like the green light, you know, the green light to the world. Well, guys, look, if you're in crypto or Bitcoin, come to Switzerland. We want you. We will make it uh, possible. But you know, the backdoor story, like you know, the hidden story as you call it, untold story, was actually that back then in 2015 and beginning of 2016, you know, Finma was not very big fin fan of us coming here to Switzerland. Basically, you know, at some point, 
they stopped so regularly communicating with us. They told us, well, guys, get a banking license, otherwise we're not talking, and this is it. And Ventus was very disappointed. He said, like, well, you know what? We're not doing the stupid banking license, and we're just abandoning Switzerland. We leave. Goodbye, Switzerland. I had enough. <laughs> and and I was also very disappointed because all my efforts kind of, you know, came to nothing. And and that was the moment for me where I realized, well, you know, it's actually not about FINMA. It's not about financial regulator. This is a much bigger story, right? It's about this new competitive advantage for financial services here in Switzerland. And And I was sure that, you know, on government level, on parliament level, there are certain, um, you know, p- political members, politicians, parliament members that understand this. So I was looking for them and I found them. I found a group of, you know, parliamentary members called Digital Sustainability. And this was their credo. They were, you know, defending rights of companies in this digital space, right? And they were, you know, uh, supporting open source projects and so on and so on. So they invited me to burn uh, to their you know, member session. And I was speaking about XAPU and I told them, look, you know, I think FINMA is not getting this. It's not about money laundering. It's about the future of financial infrastructure. And we need your help. We need, you know, you to go to the parliament and submit a motion and tell them that it's not about, you know, getting a banking license. And first, Charlie, I thought this is very naive of me and they will not listen and nobody will help me. But, you know, they did. There were two parliamentary members that wrote a motion to the parliament about the changing of the banking law. That, really? Yeah, that will not put saving of the, of the private key in the same category as public deposit and banking category. So they suggested with this motion, I mean, I helped to write it, they suggested to exclude saving of the private keys from the banking license, right? So that you could get license to store the private keys without banking license. How amazing is that? (laughs) Is it a separate license that you need to get now or did they basically say you're excluded? Exactly. So the idea was to say, it's excluded. And you know, then Parliament, wow. yeah, crazy, right? I couldn't believe. And look, Charlie, this is an advantage of such country as Switzerland. It's small, you know, it's transparent. There are, you know, so many parliamentary members. There is so much, uh, you know, administration and all of this. So it's it's very transparent and, and you can have a real impact, right? You have... You can, you know, push some things through and and be heard even in the ocean of voices, right? <laughs> so they submitted a motion to the parliament, uh, Franz Grütter, uh, one parliament member. And, you know, unfortunately, parliament voted, but they voted against this motion. So formally, the motion was kind of, you know, put down. And I was disappointed. <laughs> But then what actually happened is that because of the scale of this discussion, you know, it was all in the press and, you know, it became public. And I was talking to a lot of newspapers that all of this, you know, public awareness, all of a sudden people at FINMA started to realize, well, that they should probably have a second look at it. And and probably it's a good idea to think about it again. Even so, Parliament voted down the motion. But, you know, several months later, um, we were visiting office of um, head of FINMA, financial supervisory, and he told us basically, guys, I want to make it happen. Let's do it. And we said like, well, you know, we've been waiting for one and a half years. How how much longer should we wait? And he said, I'm going to make it happen in three months. And they did. So that was, you know, incredible success story for Xapo, right? To be the that first. Up the door. Yeah, not just Zappo, but for all these other companies. Exactly, exactly. Because everybody else and just followed the suit. If you do custody, well, there is already a custody case, right? So you just follow the, the path, right? 
So it's, as you can imagine, for me personally, that was a big victory because, you see, I have German passport. I am German citizen. I grew up in Russia, Ukraine, right? Uh, this is not my country. Yes, well, I've been here for seven years now, but I'm not insider in political system here in Switzerland, right? And and still somehow I, I made it happen, right? So so for me it was incredible personal victory, right? And and also you know it helped me to understand how powerful we can be actually. We as a startups, we as an entrepreneurs, pushing the border of innovation, we have really voice here. People listen to us, you know. Authorities listen to us. We can change things. Right. And, and you can imagine for me coming from Ukraine where, you know, everything is corrupt. You can only pay your way into any kind of changes. Right. Everything is so broken down. And for me, it was that, that experience to see things work in Switzerland, people having a voice, you know, changing the legal <laughs> environment. Right. I was like, wow, this is amazing country. I never going to leave. This is a country where I'm going to work and die. <laughs> In our country, even citizens can't change things like that. You have to be in politics very high up. Right? Yeah. So so this is I think this is one of the strongest points, you know, and basically kind of what speaks for this country, right? Is that that, you know, people and companies and even small companies can can shape the way business works and if it's good for society and it's good for business then there are ways that state will make it happen. I want to I want to understand something, right? So you know the the personality the personality and character style of an individual is is very telling. And you know the 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 things that you grew up with and what really shaped who you are. I feel like influenced your decisions and allowed you to to do things that most people, including myself, would would think is is impossible, um, right? And so, people talk about having a chip on your shoulder, and you mentioned it earlier. Um, and I and I I feel like I walk around with a chip on my shoulder as well. Um, and I'm in this world that, you know, because I grew up in a very religious community, uh, a very religious Jewish community, and that was its bubble, its community. And and I feel like an outsider sometimes in in the non-religious community. And I walk around here and and I say I feel like people think I'm a fraud. Um, and I don't I don't belong here. And if I fail, I have to crawl back into the hole where I came from. Do you feel that same way too sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this journey is never over, right? This is the way you know your first experiences in life they're shaping your character and your destiny, right? And, you know, those are the things. Strive for best results, right? Work hard. This is also kind of like, you know, ideology and religion belief, right? So I think this is never going to change for me too. You know, I'm a very hard-working person here now. You know, after I left Xapo, I um, started with uh, three other co-founders, Smart. Valor, um, it's in the company here in Souk. Um, we are building a platform for um, security tokens, so security tokens exchange for alternative investments. And you know, now we are almost two years old. I never took a vacation. I work almost all of the weekends. I never leave office before twelve. It's like you know, it's it's just who you are, right? And I think no matter how successful you get this part of you is never changing, right? It's just the way who you are. And and you know what? I, I kind of like it this way. I can't imagine me, you know, retiring or doing nothing or doing just a little bit. Like, it's just not me. I love it. I love it, you know, working hard. I <laughs> encourage my employees also work hard. And, and I see, you know, how what I do also shapes the destinies and decisions of other people around me. And that is actually quite a po- powerful thing, you know. If you see people taking decisions because you shared your story or because they see how you do things, wow, I mean, that's completely different dimensions than being executive director and having direct reports, you know. People who listen to you because you're 
on paper executive director. You know, you can you can get there, but to really, you know, have influence on people on a personal level, this is a real power. I hope you know what I mean. <laughs> I do. I do. And I feel like it's what drives us a lot more than simply making money. Um, Absolutely. I feel like what drives us, what drives us is, is the, 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 the wanting to have a place in this world. Um, we want, I mean, at the end of the day, no one wants to die alone, right? No one wants to be buried in a grave that no one remembers. We want to have an established legacy. We want to, we want to say that we've contributed to society in some way or another. Absolutely. You know, there was a book of a lady who used to, you know, be this person when people die, you know, as the last person that takes care of people who are about to die in one, two, one, one or two weeks. And she said in this book, she wrote that, you know, the one thing that almost everybody was, um, you know, sorry about at the end of their life is the things that they did not do, that they wanted to do, but they didn't do it, right? Like so many people wanted to have, you know, to, to become entrepreneur or to do something better for society, but they never found a way or the courage to do it. And then at the end of their life, they regret it, right? And I think, you know, who was it? Jeff Bezos, I guess, uh, the Amazon uh, founder and CEO. He said, well, he also lived in this remorse minimization framework right so he just knew he will if he will not do amazon and will not give it a try he will always regret it so in this remorse minimization framework he just did what he believed will you know reduce the <laughs> uh, the feeling of you know uh, having not done something so and I think for me it's the same you know if you if you think about it like how much do do we have to live how many years like really good productive years of our professional career do we have do you want to spend all this power and energy on just making money i mean you can do it anyway you can do it in so many ways right so at some point it doesn't become you know like a reason to work right I was very lucky to invest in Bitcoin back in 2013 and, and 14 and 15. And, and, you know, most of this, I, well, I benefit, benefited from, uh, you know, Bitcoin <laughs> hitting 20,000. I sold, I invested in Bitcoin. We were the first and largest investors in our own company, Smart Valour. But, you know, to me, this is the most, the best way to spend your savings and resources, to put it to work in something that you know you can make a huge success, right? So, of course. Yeah. So, this is an exciting, you know, journey that we started with Smart Valor. So, we already, as I did for Xapo, you know, I got the same license here in Switzerland, financial intermediary. But it didn't took me one and a half year. It took me three months, right? And we did everything ourselves, no lawyers, right? <laughs> That's an amazing thing. And then we also got, you know, um, another legal entity uh, in Liechtenstein. That's a neighboring country here. We registered their crypto to fiat exchange. And also in Liechtenstein, we are currently in the process of getting licensed as basically stock exchange. Yeah, so security trading platform you call it in us i guess alternative trading ats sure. right yeah so it's a little bit even broader right so with this license which is called here mtf multilateral trading facility it's a european union wide license so you can you know passport this into 30 european countries so with this license we will be able to trade securities derivatives options, structured products, any kind of securities or financial instruments. Your latest project that you've been working on is Smart Valor. Uh, tell me about the project. So, um, you know, Smart Valor is basically a security token exchange for alternative investments. In terms of products, um, we're looking at enabling trade not just for cryptocurrency and utility tokens but basically for any kind of tokenized real assets be it you know shares in a private company um, be it you know shares or limited partner stake in venture capital fund in any kind of fund right 
There can be security tokens backed by real estate, infrastructure project, and so on. And also, you know, an interesting part of this are derivatives on, on uh, cryptocurrencies. I think this is a very big area that is not even, you know, discovered properly through um, legal entities, well, licensed uh, exchanges. So basically, we see ourselves as a place, as a marketplace um, for alternative investments. So everything outside of public publicly traded equity, debt, money, market instruments. So everything else is actual alternative investments, right? Cryptocurrencies, all of this stuff. And I think, you know, this alternative investment space, it, it suffers from illiquidity and difficulty of access to this space, you know, because of the big stakes, because of the liquid market. So this is exactly the area where tokenization of assets um, holds the biggest improvement in terms of the process it makes those investments more accessible and more liquid so this is why we specialized on basically covering different types of alternative investments so in terms of this is, is for the product right in terms of regulation well as i mentioned we are already licensed as a financial intermediary in switzerland and crypto to fiat exchange in Liechtenstein. and with those two licenses we can already launch a cryptocurrency and utility tokens exchange. This is what is happening right now. So since last week, we opened for public access um, our exchange, Smart Valor Exchange, so people can already access. You can access. I would really appreciate, Charlie, your opinion. What do you think about my exchange? I mean, it's maybe, yeah, it's maybe not the most sophisticated in terms of trading features, right? But this is not our you know, our purpose. We don't want to compete with cryptocurrency exchanges. We're a security token exchange, right? We will make available products, you know, that 90% of other exchanges cannot list, right? So this is where we are going. Um, so now we're going to, another two weeks, there's going to be this public access to the exchange in test environment. We're collecting feedback. People can earn Valor token within seven categories. Um, and then after that, uh, probably in, in June, we're going to launch the exchange, right? So that's, by the way, Charlie, that's going to be the first cryptocurrency exchange operated out of Switzerland. You will laugh, but you know, yeah, Crypto Valley still doesn't have an exchange. It's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, so, and this is the first stage for us. We're going to launch with top five cryptocurrencies and then expand this, this, the scope of uh, cryptocurrencies traded on the platform. Um, and at the same time, we are moving forward with MTF, with getting licensed for um, for security token exchange, right? It's much more complicated, you know, it's several legal entities that we need to, um, you know, to build operations there for, because we want to enable also access for retail investors, for any kind of investors. So what we are actually looking here for is a great security token offering and projects. If you know somebody who is building their security token and they're looking for a venue to list, please remember it's us here in Switzerland. And so this is basically a Europe-wide platform. Um, so that's, that's you know, one of the things on our side. And we Olga, how can people contact you? <laughs> well, it's very simple. It's olga.feltmeyer at smartvalor.com. It's my name at companyname.com, right? It's very simple. Perfect. Yeah, so basically this is what's going on. We also have our own exchange-native cryptocurrency, Valor. It's very similar to Binance token. We had um, a public sale and private sale last year, and now it's listed, I guess, on two exchanges, um, one Korean exchange, Bitsump, and Bitmax. Right, so people are already trading the Valor token. It doesn't even have, you know, the operations exchange is not live yet. It will be in several weeks, but already now we see great interest and all of this is happening at the same time. And I'm not, I'm never saying that, you know, Valor token is going to be better than Binance or give you more yield. Like, you know, nobody knows. But I think, you know, the exchange native tokens, it's a new way to indirectly own the new financial infrastructure, right? And, you know, if folks earlier, you know, who owns NASDAQ? Who owns, 
you know, New York Stock Exchange. Well, banks and asset managers, right? Who owns Binance? Binance token holders, right? And they are benefiting yep. from success of Binance. So I think, you know, the way, you know, this industry, the, the way of or the form of ownership, right, is going to be very different from everything that we've seen before, right? And people who are brave enough, who are courageous enough to invest in those early projects like Smart Valor, they will see um, a significant, significant um, rewards for this risk-taking attitude. Olga, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really wonderful. You're welcome, Charlie. Thank you very much for inviting me for my untold story. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.